Welcome to this podcast featuring Amir Sarfati, founder and president of Behold Israel. Behold Israel provides biblical teachings through its tours, speaking events, and social media. It's also a reliable and accurate source for developments in Israel and the region. Amir's live updates and teachings are based on God's written word. Connect with Behold Israel on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Download our free app, available on Android and Apple, under Behold Israel. Shalom from downtown Athens. Um, Today we're going to deal with the story of Paul in his second missionary journey, visiting Athens for the first time. And we're going to see something pretty amazing regarding the way he explained the gospel to the people of Athens. One must remind himself that the entire gospel was first communicated to the Jewish people. The Bible even say that the gospel has the power of salvation to the Jew first, then to the Greek. It's very interesting that the Greek were always put in the context of the gospel as the exact opposite of the Jewish people and the spectrum in which the gospel was preached was all the way from the Jew to the Greek. And that in between was all throughout uh, the different cities uh, that um, the gospel was preaching. It's very interesting. The arrival of Paul to Athens basically brought him from the area of Jerusalem where they talked about several issues in regards to Judaism, Jewish law, and the Gentiles, all the way to the climax of the exposure of the gospel to the Gentiles right here in the capital of the Greek people, Athens. And in order to understand the events of Acts chapter 17, one must go back to chapter 15 and understand where Paul is coming from. The second missionary journey of Paul that took place between 49 and 52 AD, for three years Paul was uh, walking all the way from Jerusalem up to Syria through the, Tur- the area of Turkey of today into Macedonia and Greece of today all the way down to Athens. We must remember that it all started in Jerusalem and not for nothing. The Bible says in chapter 15 of the uh, book of Acts that certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, some people told the Gentile believers outside of the land of Israel that in order to be saved, they must follow the law of Moses. And one of, obviously, the outer expressions of it is the circumcision of the flesh. And therefore, the Bible says, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain order of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. And this is what we call the first Jerusalem council or summit. We're talking about a very important issue that uh, 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 was standing before the people of Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem. What are we going to do with the non-Jewish believers? It's very interesting. Nowadays, 99% 
of those who believe in Jesus and believe in the gospel are non-Jews. And when a Jew comes to Christ today, that is a big miracle. But in those days, it was exactly the opposite. It was Jewish people who believed in Jesus. And when a non-Jew came to Christ, we needed to find out what are we going to do with him? What is it that we need to tell him that he should be keeping? And what is it that is not for him? And it's interesting because after they presented the case and after um, they heard what Saul and Barnabas had to tell them, the Bible says in Acts 15 verse 13, the following, after they had become silent, James answered saying, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon had declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David. And then he says in verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write that to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. And then in verse 22, then it pleased the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas and also Silas, leading men among the brethren. And of course, we, we understand that now Paul is about to uh, go out to the second missionary journey, but this time he is accompanied by some respected brethren and he is not really making a big progress with them for too long. The Bible says that they actually separated Already at the end of the chapter, the Bible says um, that Barnabas, in verse 37, was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And they went throughout Syria and Kilikia, strengthening the churches. And from there, we understand all the way from Syria through Turkey to Macedonia and chapter 17, our chapter is bringing us to Northern Greece where the Bible says they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Messiah, is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greek and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. Ladies and gentlemen, 
As always, Paul begins with the Jewish people. He enters into the synagogue first. He preaches on the Sabbath day first. And he is always, always opening the scriptures in order to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. Very interesting. I always tell people, Paul never preached from the New Testament. Jesus never preached from the New Testament. There was no New Testament at the time of the New Testament. It was, when the Bible says scriptures, it was the, the Tanakh, the um, Old Testament. And so, obviously, the knowledge of Paul, the customs of Paul, the nature of Paul is, and is, is I know the Bible, and through the Bible, through the scriptures, it is easy for me now, when I understand the scriptures and the prophecies and everything, I can see him through Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And that is the way Paul is used to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, through the scriptures. Now we have a problem. Paul is coming all the way to Thessalonica, and we know that um, in that city, there was a problem. People who didn't like them actually said, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Yason has harbored them, and then um, they are also acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. <laughs> They're trying to incite the people that it's not only about religion, it's about rebelling against Caesar's authority. Ladies and gentlemen, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And they arrived there and went where? Straight to the synagogue. The Bible says, uh, the synagogue of the Jews. And these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Something in Thessalonica, I don't know, it's the food, the weather, made the Jews of that city very, very extreme. Yet those in Berea were more sound-minded, the Bible says. And they actually, everything that Paul said, that's why we, we have that term, let's be good Bereans. Everything that Paul said, the Bible says that those people in Berea searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Again, the scriptures were that which the disciples used to prove Jesus and those who heard the gospel were looking into in order to see if it's okay. Remember the scriptures. But again, we have a problem. We know that now after Paul uh, was smuggled from there, from Thessaloniki to Berea, they also sent him all the way down to Piraeus, which and of course the harbor of, of Athens, and of course he went to Athens. And the Bible, and now we come to our story, the Bible tells us that in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, while Paul waited for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul is a Jew. He's used to preach to the Jews. He is, he's, a devout Jew, even after he, 
he acknowledged that the traditions are no longer that important to him, but still for him, being a Jew was a very important thing. Remaining a Jew is important thing. Telling the world that he never lost his Jewishness is, is a very important thing. And as such, his entire understanding of how to preach the gospel, who to preach the gospel to, was centered around the scriptures. But he is coming to the capital, the capital of idolatry. They say that there were 12 major deities that the Greek believed in, but there were thousands of thousands of lesser deities um, that, that the Greek believed. Someone once said that it was easier to find an idol than a human being in Greece, in Athens. It was that many, and Paul has never been exposed to that many. You have to understand something. This is the capital. This is the very heart. You're talking about 3,400 years of recorded history of a city. You're talking about a place of, of, of classic art, philosophy, the birthplace of democracy, the place of poetry. You're talking about a culture that shaped the entire world until this very day. When you go and travel around the world, you often see Greek-shaped uh, uh, buildings that are even built today. It's interesting because behind me, up on that hill, the Acropolis, the upper city, this is the house of the Parthenon, which is a very amazing 5th century BC shrine of the gods, but it was the house of the shrine of Athena. Athena, the ancient Greek goddess of wisdom, handicraft, and warfare, who was also later syncretized with the Roman goddess Minerva. And I want you to know that um, while they were there, while Paul was there, inside that same Parthenon that you see on top stood a 40-foot tall sculpture of Athena called Athena Parthenos. And by the way, Athena Parthenos means Athena the Virgin. It's a very interesting thing that uh, a virgin goddess was already in the culture of people who worship, um, um, you know, deities in those days. And that big, massive sculpture that was made of ivory and gold, made by Phidias, a very important and, and known artist of those days, him and his assistants, and he, and, and he was housed in the Parthenon over there. So when Paul is arriving, not only that stood before him a goddess that is known as, as, as a virgin, but everywhere around there were idols and shrines almost all around. It was unbelievable. So we're talking about Paul arriving in a city surrounded by shrines and gods and if that's not enough, now he had to deal with the human beings also. And the Bible says that once he arrived in Athens, after he was so disturbed by what he saw, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers there, and in the marketplace known as the Agora, 
daily with those who happen to be there. And then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler wants to say? Very disrespectful uh, uh, um, uh, term to use. Um, they really didn't take him seriously, did they? But it's interesting because the Bible uh, say that others said he seems to be proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, bear in mind, the word resurrection in the Greek, Anastasia, sounded to them like a female goddess, Jesus and Anastasia. So for them, it's he's preaching foreign gods in plural simply because it was Jesus and the resurrection, yet they understood something completely different. And it's interesting because um, uh, these two groups of people, the Epicureans and the Stoic, were the two major schools of philosophy in Athens of those days. You're talking about um, uh, schools of philosophy. One followed Epicurus, who lived between 341 and 270 BC, and he taught that pleasure and happiness was the ultimate goal of life. Live the day, live the moment, enjoy it. In fact, if you talk about something else or do something else, you just wasted very, very uh, precious minutes. The other one, the Stoic thinkers regarded Zeno, who lived around the same time as their founder. And um, he was noted for promoting the rationale, not the feeling, the, 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 the common sense for them over the emotional. You have to get over, take over, suppress your emotions and live as if they are not there. And both of them, by the way, just so you know, both of them believed in many gods, not in the one God. And it's very interesting because, as I said, the first one, the Epicureans, they were teaching the ultimate goal of life is to find pleasure and happiness, live the moment, live the day. Sounds familiar, by the way. <laughs> and then they, they, don't, they say, don't worry about tomorrow or what happen after you die. So you understand that when Paul talks about death and resurrection, for them, we don't think about that. We don't want to know about that. That's, we want to live the day, the moment. Zeno, on the other hand, taught that God was the great soul of all men and that he is in everyone. So basically all men are brothers and, and all men are some, somehow samples of God. And by the way, the Stoic, those who follow Zeno, they were high moral uh, life people and also good upright people. In other words, we're talking about people who thought that they're good enough, they don't need anything else. They're moral, they're okay, everything is fine. So on one hand, you see a group of people that is actually all about live the moment, all about feeling pleasure and happiness. On the other hand, the other school of thought is, it's not about feeling, you have to be strictly moral person and ignore feelings and, and all of that. And both of them, by the way, never really managed to think that there is a God that created the whole place. It's interesting because 
they, when they, when they presented themselves before Paul, Paul looked at them and he kind of realized these people, although they kind of look like they're popular, they are the, the message of the moment, they are the, the trendiest uh, 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 people around. They think they know better, they were enlightened, they teach others. Paul realized all of them are just religious people. In fact, when Paul addressed them, Paul said to the men of Athens in verse 22, I perceive that in all things you're very religious. And by the way, he was using the Greek word <laughs> which means respectful of what is divine and religious. In other words, Paul says, hey, it seems like you are respectful of the divine things. It seems like it's not like you are pushing away the idea of deity or, or a higher power than you. So let me tell you something. I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship and I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And then he says, therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim to you. And it's interesting, I was thinking for myself, okay, what is the unknown God that Paul is talking about? I think first of all, Paul is masterfully uses this altar as an opportunity to share the one true God. We know that um, in those days, they believed in so many deities, but they were so concerned that there may be one more that they're missing, that they had that shrine and that altar for the unknown God. And it's very interesting. It, he was called Agnostos Theos. Gnostics were, or Gnosticism coming from, from that. And, and they, for them, in case we don't know that guy, we, we, we need a, an altar for him. Interesting, they were swearing in his name. Now, I'm thinking to myself, Paul was so smart. He's not used to speak to those people. He, he goes to synagogue, he opens the Bible, he preaches from Jeremiah and Isaiah, he preaches that there is New Testament, that the Messiah had to come, had to suffer, had to die. Paul always proved the Messiah through the scriptures. But now he's in the middle of the most pagan, idolatrous city in the world of those days. How will he communicate the gospel? And, and I'm sure that many of you back home are thinking, I'm, I, I'm in my working place, uh, there's no way I can communicate the gospel. They don't understand anything. Uh, these people are all given to other things. They, they believe in this and they believe in that. I want to tell you something. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and also to the Gentiles. And the Bible says, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. 
for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. The Bible says that from the very beginning, Jesus predicted that his disciples will have to go and speak the truth of the gospel to the Gentiles. And of course, you cannot come to the Greek and open the Old Testament and says, Jeremiah says that there will be New Testament. Isaiah said that Messiah has to come. Moses said this. And, 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 and Hosea says that. You cannot do that. So Paul, in his amazing skills of using the moment and using circumstances, is looking around and he's finding the one thing that he can use to take the gospel from there and explain it to the people. So how is he explaining everything? In verse 24 of chapter 17, it says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. In other words, he says, you guys, you understand, there is one unknown God, but that's the God that made everything. And by the way, he is not in the Parthenon or in any other temple. None of your idols created the world, have they? You don't even attribute that to them, do you? So the God that created everything does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with man's hand. And through he needed anything, excuse me, and though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things, and he has made from one, by the way, the Greek says one, in some version it says one blood, in others it just says from one, namely Adam, the first. He made from one every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. Paul, in three verses, explained the entire 11, first 11 chapters of Genesis. Basically, he says, guys, let's all agree on one thing. God created the world. He created men. From one man, he made all the rest and he gave them boundaries and countries and languages. And that's what we have today. First 11 chapters of Genesis, basically. And the reason why I'm saying that is this. You will never be able either, neither to explain God nor to communicate the gospel with omitting the creation. Let's remember one thing. Without teaching creation, you'll never be able to communicate or you will never be able to establish that God exists and that Jesus indeed is needed even. We, we have to understand, and there's so many progressive churches, progressive pastors, modern ideas of we don't have to believe in the seven days creation. We don't even have to believe in the creation. We just have to tell people that they're sinners and they must be saved and that's it. What? I don't understand that. 
the basis for the claim that man is sinner is creation. It starts with Genesis 1 through 11 that speaks of the fall of man, continues with how people are now conceived in sin, goes on to their need for a savior, and therefore Jesus come to the world. Why would you come and tell someone that he needs a savior when to begin with, you don't tell him that man is fallen creature goes back all the way to Genesis and explain what was the, the sin that started it all. Let's face it, it all starts with either the word of God or the word of man. When God spoke, he says, don't do this, don't touch that, so you shall live. When men decided to do what he wants, he says, I will touch this, I will touch that, for surely I will not die. And he brought upon himself death. So God in his word gives you life, Man in his word gives you death. And when man decided to take his route, death came to the world. Death is the direct consequence of what? Of sin. For the, um, the Bible says, for the um, wages of sin is death. And now we understand if there is sin and there is death, we need forgiveness of sins and we need salvation and we need redemption and we need a way back to God. That's it. It's very, very simple. So, interesting. Paul continues in his masterful way of explaining the gospel through their own culture. He says in Acts 17, 28, for in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your poets have said, he said, for we are also his offsprings. And I was, I was looking into that. Indeed, there was a very famous Greek poet called Aratus who lived between 315 and 240 BC. He wrote several poems, two major ones. One of them was known as Phenomena. And Phenomena says, let us begin with Zeus, whom we mortals never leave unspoken, for every street, every marketplace is full of Zeus. Even the sea and the harbor are full of his deity. Everywhere, everyone is indebted to Zeus, for we are indeed his offsprings. That's what he said. Of course, he talks about Zeus. But Paul is basically saying to the people, wait a minute. You're saying you're the offsprings of a god. So how can that god be? of silver or gold if you humans are the offsprings of that God. That is a way to communicate to the people of Athens that indeed God is not someone who dwells in temples made of men and he's not someone who's made of gold or silver. And it's interesting because in Acts 17, now we understand that Paul, in that beautiful way of communication of the gospel to the people of Athens, is now moving to this amazing, amazing thing. And I'm talking about what's next. And then he says to the people of Athens, Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men, say all men, all men. There is no, there is no 
difference between Jew or a Greek. All men. And he says, because he, has, he says he commands all men everywhere. It's not limited to people or to places to repent. By the way, the first word Jesus said in his public ministry in Capernaum was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And then he says, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that it is appointed upon men to die once and then what? To be judged. To be judged. God says no human being will not be standing before his judgment throne. The judgment has been uh, uh, proclaimed through the Old Testament to everyone, even to the Jews and the Gentiles alike. And so he says, look, there is an appointed day. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing how God appointed a day. He sent a solution, a way to get out of it. And he's telling you there's a day and I'm going to tell you when it's going to happen also. How much more of warnings, of, of expression of love, concern, and, 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 and I would say a care do you need more than what, what he's just saying. He's telling the people of Athens, you're so smart. How can you be so smart and worship things made of gold and silver in man-made temples? You're so smart to understand that God who created the heavens and the earth, that's the God that you, you call the unknown. You know exactly that of all the thousands of God that you worship, there has to be one that you're missing. <laughs> and you know that you're afraid that you might be missing the real one. And that real one who created the heavens and the earth is the one who ignored, he ignored the times of ignorance. He allowed you to go your ways, but now, no more excuses. The time has come and the man of the hour has arrived, the Messiah himself, to provide solution for sin, salvation and redemption. And now, we are communicating that message to you so you will have no excuse. Anyone who heard the message will have to go back home and say, all right, well, I just heard that I'm a sinner. And I just heard that I can be saved if I believe in Jesus, the Messiah. Now, I can reject that message or I can accept that message, but I cannot ignore that message. And that is exactly what happened. Now, it's interesting. The Bible says, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them was Dionysius, the Archopagite. What is the Archopagite? Remember, Paul was brought to the Areopagus. As you can see, it is a rocky place just below 
the uh, Acropolis. This is the place where the city council used to meet. Roughly 30 noble men. And that's where, by the way, even trials were held. And Paul was standing right there. They couldn't judge him or try him because it's no longer a crime to preach other gods. But it used to be a crime to preach other gods. Now they just are so curious. Who are those gods that you're talking about? And he's saying, I'm not preaching to you those gods. I preach Jesus and the resurrection. And it's, in, it's interesting because the Bible says, so Paul departed from among them, but some men joined him and believed. And among them, one of those 30, Dionysius, the Archipagai, and a woman called Damaris and others with them. I want to tell you something. Everywhere you go and preach the gospel, most likely the majority will reject, but there will always be those who will hear, take heed, accept, and follow. And for the sake of those, you need to preach to everyone. You just never know. Go to your office, go to your school, go to your family members. You're gonna preach the gospel to them. 90% may reject it, but for the 10%, you're sent to the whole hundred. In order for them, A, to not have any more excuse, and also, in order for them to have a chance to respond to the gospel. All of you know that you're minorities in your family, in your working place, in your schools, you are a minority. I always tell people, you will never ever be the majority. The only time believers will be the majority is when they will be the only ones. And that's when? When God will make all things new, new heavens and new earth. Even throughout the thousand years millennial kingdom, the believers will not be the majority. It's very interesting to see that. So now we're gonna summon it up. And now we're gonna somehow understand that there are two matches, great messages that were communicated to the world that the book of Acts is talking about. In Acts chapter two, when Peter was standing before the Jews and a mixed crowd, he preached to the Jewish people and we know the 3,000 were saved that day. And then in Acts chapter 17, where he preached to the Greek, and we know that some people joined. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 to 23, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. If it was a stumbling block in Jerusalem for Peter, here Paul was held as a fool and the gospel was, was held as foolishness. But that, remember, through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. So we have to remember that. And I will conclude with this. The unknown God is still unknown to most people. They can claim that they know God. They can claim that they follow God. They can claim that they worship God. But I want to tell you something. Unless you believe in the Messiah, you don't know God. 
The Bible says in Matthew 11, verse 27, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. If you know the Messiah, you know the true God, and He is no longer unknown. But if you don't know the Messiah, you do not know God, and He is still unknown, even to you, even today. And my question to you today, do you know the unknown God? The Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, from verse 7, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from a law, the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him. Do you know Him? Paul said, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. If you want to be resurrected from the dead, you need first to believe in the one who was the first fruit from amongst those who fell asleep. If you want to know the unknown God, then you need to preach the gospel and believe in what you preach. Because Paul says he is the apostle. He is the one who delivers the message. And he says, I want to know him. And not just to know him, but to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and of course, being conformed to his death, so I will also take part in the resurrection from the dead. Do you know the unknown God? I hope so. Because through Christ Jesus is the only way, only truth, and the only life, and the only chance for you to know the unknown God. Thanks for listening to this podcast featuring Amir Sarfati, founder and president of Behold Israel. Connect with Behold Israel on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Download our free app available on Android and Apple under Behold Israel. Amir's teachings can be found in multiple languages. You can also visit our website, beholdisrael.org.